Hello and welcome to What the Heck, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. Every week we look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, and then look at the theories surrounding it. I'm your host, Glenn, and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can, and references are given at the end of the episode. Today's episode is the first one of season three. 2023 has been a rocky road and we're finally back with opening week. I've started a day early because we're looking at a big topic this time. These episodes are all unexplained phenomena. For the opening week of season three, we're looking at demonic possession. This is a revisiting of something I covered way back in the opening week of season one. That week was written and recorded in seven days and has since been re-recorded to make it sound better than it was when it first released. In episode seven, I covered the demonic possessions of Joseph and Theobald Brunner and the demonic possession of a woman known as Mary. At the end of the episode, instead of giving theories, I said I wouldn't go into them because I planned on going into it later. Well, today's the day. Let's look at demonic possession. Demonic possession appears in more than one religion, but most of the information people already know is about the Christian form of the phenomenon. So we'll start there. From my research, it looks like demonic possession isn't mentioned in the Old Testament at all, first appearing in the New Testament. In these passages, the possession is referred to as being with an unclean spirit, or having a demon, but mentions of demonic possession do exist. In these depictions, possession showed itself in different ways to the other illnesses known at the time. Jesus himself was able to distinguish between illness and possession due to having the Holy Spirit, which hadn't been given to the people yet, though it was relatively easy for him to figure it out. In Mark 3.10, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. The sick people are said to have reached towards him and the possessed fell down before him. The possession is signaled to Jesus rather than him having a power that let him just figure it out. But in other circumstances, Jesus has to work it out himself. In one instance, Jesus meets a boy who is said to have a dumb spirit, but Jesus refers to it as a dumb and deaf spirit suggesting that the boy was affected more than the people around him knew. If we look at Islam, demonic possession takes on a different form. Demons don't exist in the same way in Islam and are referred to as jinn. I covered them in Creature Feature 26. Islam sees possession as a sickness in two stages. In the first stage, the possessed is in control and should be held accountable for their actions. The second stage has the possessed lose control of their own mind and go insane, losing their accountability, although they still suffer consequences for the actions that they take. These are often passed on to their family because they're accountable for the finances of the possessed. There are no mentions of possession in the Quran though, which means there is no support from the scriptures in that regard. 
There is a story of a woman who took her son to the Holy Prophet after he was suffering from epilepsy though. The Holy Prophet is said to have put a hand on him and commanded the enemy of Allah out of the boy. This is attributed to jinn possession by some Muslim scholars, but others say that the Holy Prophet was willing the illness from the boy. The word jinn is also used to refer to unseen forces, meaning that the possessions may not be from jinn at all. Both Islam and Christianity have a Satan in their scriptures, and this is important to possession. In Christianity, Satan is the Lord of Hell and commands the demons to do his bidding. Pretty simple stuff. But in Islam, Satan is a spirit that urges people to do evil. In the Quran, he can't possess a person though, which makes possession in Islam more complex. Another way that both religions are similar in this is that sorcery in any form is bad. In Islam, sorcery appeals to jinn and is forbidden. In Christianity, sorcery is the work of Satan and comes from a pact made with him. Christian sorcery is adjacent to possession in that the culprits have knowingly bound themselves to a demon. The same argument could be made for Islam, but there isn't a contract with the jinn. They are just drawn to the sorcery. By extension, it's possible that possession can happen to innocent people if they have been the victim of sorcery. The effects of possession vary between cases. In almost all cases though, victims lose time and have blank parts in their memories. It's impossible to list all the symptoms of possession without looking at cases, which will happen throughout the week, so that will be detailed with each case. With the information about demonic possession given, Let's look at pe how people remove possession. Demonic possession might seem like a permanent thing, but there are people in the world that train to remove demons from people. These people are usually called exorcists, which likely conjures up an image of Catholic priests shouting, the power of Christ compels you to a little girl who vomits pea soup. This image most likely comes from the 1973 film, The Exorcist, which followed the 1971 novel of the same name by William Peter Blatty and is a cult classic for horror film lovers. Exorcism is a real practice performed in Catholicism by priests who trained to do the work that Jesus was believed to have the power to do. But that's not where it began. It started much earlier than Christianity, specifically Mesopotamia. In the first millennium BCE, magic practitioners would use their powers to protect people from and expel demons that would bring illness and chaos to their homes. They employed the use of amulets, elaborate rituals, and sometimes other demons to help them in their efforts to protect their friends and families. The ancient Greeks had daemons, which could be good or evil, and would have to be exorcised if they were evil. In the first century CE, historian Josephus described the story of Eleazar, who exorcised demons by pulling them out through the nose and invoked the name of King Solomon, which suggests that these exorcisms were Jewish in nature 
King Solomon was first mentioned by me in episode 55, where he was the king of Jerusalem and owned the Ark of the Covenant. But he also had a magic ring that allowed him to capture and control demons, which links him to exorcism in a tentative way. Exorcism really took off with the growth of Christianity. They were a way to unite the faithful Christians and to vindicate their beliefs during a time where they were persecuted. In the first four books in the New Testament, known as the Gospels, Jesus is said to have expelled evil spirits in 70 BCE, around 40 years after his death. These stories showed the power that Jesus had as the Son of God and gave paganism an evil connotation and showed it as something that needed to be exercised from people. By the 4th century CE, exorcism was a part of baptism. Before someone was baptised, they underwent daily exorcism rituals, and the morning of the baptism, a bishop would blow evil influences off them in a process called exaflation. This was added to the baptismal rites in 1526 by Martin Luther, the German theologian. This didn't happen out of nowhere. Martin Luther had written a list of complaints about Catholicism in 1517, sparking the Protestant Reformation. He was excommunicated by 1521, and the rites were updated for Protestants in 1526. This meant that babies being baptised would be exercised so that they could reject Satan, sin and other evils throughout their life. Outside of this, normal churchmen would lay hands on people to carry out exorcism. Not only this, but even into the early Middle Ages, Christians were able to exorcise themselves by calling on a saint, going to a shrine or appealing to a sacred entity for aid. However, in the 12th century CE, exorcism underwent a huge transformation. The rise of Christian sects like the dualist Cathars were seen as heretical and an affront to Catholicism. Despite efforts by the Catholic Church to quash these sects, Catholics moved to use exorcism as a mechanism to free Christians from their heretical beliefs. Self-exorcism became important during this time, with theologians like Thomas Aquinas beginning to look at demonology to help define and clarify what the purpose and process of exorcism was. This led to the first book on exorcism being published around 1400. This book was an all-encompassing instruction manual about how to perform an exorcism. Following Martin Luther's actions sparking the Protestant Reformation, the idea of an evil other in Christianity was more prevalent than ever. The Inquisition was formed, which took on an exorcist-like feel, which could be seen as the first official rite of exorcism sanctioned by the Catholic Church. In 1614, Rituale Romanum was instituted. This was one of the books in the Roman Rite. This book included a passage called Of Exorcism and Certain Supplications, an 84-page document that contains the rite of exorcism and reinforced the connection between baptism and exorcism. In the 1800s, evangelicalism began to rise. Evangelicals are Protestants who adhere strictly to the word of the Bible, believing in being born again, the need to convert people, and that the crucifixion will ultimately lead to the salvation of humanity. 
This leads into the Pentecostal movement of the early 1900s. Emerging in the United States, Pentecostalism focuses on the Holy Spirit, which allowed the inclusion of supernatural elements like speaking in tongues, faith healing, which saw the returning of laying on hands, and miracles and exorcism. Exorcism had continued through the years in the Catholic Church, but had declined in Protestant denominations from the 17th century onwards. Pentecostalism added a high level of energy to worship though. It also had the lure of the possibility of gaining supernatural powers from the Holy Spirit, causing it to rapidly grow in the 1950s. The birth of televangelism caused many US Christians to adopt Pentecostal traditions of worship. Catholicism went on to review Ritual Romanum, and in 1962, the Second Vatican Council began to reform the religion. The document on exorcism was ordered to be revised then. Not long afterwards, the new interest in Pentecostal tradition gave rise to charismatic Christians, who also performed exorcisms. This sparked renewed interest in the ritual in the late 1960s, in 1971, William Peter Blatty's novel kicked off a new trend, with the film being released two years later. In 1999, the updated version of the Catholic Exorcism Rites was published. It's very similar to the 1614 version, but the newer version reinforces the connection between exorcisms and baptism, which brings the idea back to its origin. But in pop culture, Exorcisms are ordeals that test a priest's faith and the victim's mind, body and soul. Is that true to real life exorcisms? I managed to find a PDF on the English version of the Rite of Exorcism. There's a note right at the beginning of it that says that exorcisms should only be performed by trained priests and every case must be authorised in advance by a local bishop. The priest can never be alone during an exorcism and should be armed with holy water, a crucifix, relics of the saints and the rites of exorcism. It's possible to purchase the document for 30 euro directly from the Vatican and they offer the same warning. The first thing of note is that there are multiple forms of exorcism. There's the right for a person. Also contained in the 1614 version are three more rights. The right against Satan and fallen angels, which pertains to places and not people. Orthodox exorcism rituals are a series of three exorcism prayers that don't have much context to them. And finally, general use prayers of deliverance are a set of four prayers also with no context. Some people still use this version of the rituals. I'll only go through the right for a person in this situation. There are preliminary instructions for the priest. The priest must be distinguished for piety, prudence and integrity of life. 
It stated that they should be of mature years and revered for moral qualities. The training they undertake is revealed here. A priest must study approved authors and cases, then observe other exorcisms. In these observations, the priest should learn to see the signs of possession so that they don't just believe anyone is possessed. The instructions go on to outline what the priest should do in an exorcism, including to be on their guard because demons can be tricky. It explains that they will hide or pretend to leave only to return. It expressly states that women being exercised must involve several women of good repute to hold the woman down if necessary. In this whole thing, the priest is assumed to be a man. For a single individual, there are seven sections to an exorcism. The first section involves a call and response called the Litany of the Saints. The call and response continues throughout the ritual. The priest should be dressed in their surplice and purple stole in the room with the possessed individual. After the litany, Psalm 53 is read. Section 2 is a lengthy command to the demon, referred to as an evil spirit. The command tells the demon to leave by order of a minister of God. Section 3 has the priest reading John 1, 1 to 14, Mark 16, 15 to 18, Luke 10, 17 to 20, and Luke 11, 14 to 22. Section 4 moves back to commands in a call and response way. Then the exorcism command begins. The phrase, the power of Christ compels you, never appears. It does, however, show where the priest should make the sign of the cross. This section is quite long, suggesting the extended nature of the ritual, with three separate exorcism commands. Section 5 just suggests that sections 1 to 4 should be repeated until the demon has let go of the possessed. Section 6 then explains that Our Fathers, an abridged version of the Lord's Prayer, should be said with Hail Marys and something known as the Creed should be said over and over to aid with the exorcism. Section 7 gives canticles known as Magnificat and Benedictus, ending with Glory Be to the Father, but also a number of Psalms, 90, 67, 69, 53, 117, 34, 30, 21, 3, 10 and 12, and the final prayer to end the ritual. The revised version of the rites is contentious in Catholicism. Some traditional Catholics believe that it's a watered down version, but others think it's fundamentally the same. This revised version removes the extra ritual for places and the prayers afterwards, focusing on people. The lengthy instruction section is removed from the beginning and it goes straight into the litany of the saints. Once again, call and response is used throughout. From there, Psalm 53 is read. And from there, the priest issues the first command. Afterwards, the Gospels are read. These are the same Gospels as in the original and in the same order. The exorcism section in the 1999 version isn't separated like in the 1614 version. It's a prolonged passage of the priest reciting and a call and response section between each piece. 
This is where we see the real differences between the two versions. The priest recites the Canticle of Our Lady and the Canticle of Zachary, then the Alanasian Creed. The list of psalms follows, which are indicated throughout, which would mean the priest would need to flip back and forth to read each psalm as necessary. Finally, we have the prayer following deliverance. As you can see, the whole ordeal is lengthy, regardless of which version is being performed. It seems that the depictions in pop culture are realistic in that regard, and the two cases I've looked at already are consistent with the length of an exorcism. It should be noted that I focused on Christianity here, but there are rites in Islam. They're used as treatments for an illness that is caused by jinn. The treatment is split between prohibited and permissible techniques, based on whether they conform to Islamic law. This means that only Allah's words are permissible. It must be in Arabic, and Allah must be allowed to affect the possessed. They have no specific exorcists, but some places that follow Islam elect specific people as exorcists for the ill and needy. Now we know more about demonic possession and exorcism, we can see why it's a religious thing. But is that all there is to it? Demonic possession and exorcism have been around as concepts for a long time. But is it a purely religious thing? The answer is mostly. But in more recent years, it's been linked to mental health. Let's take a look. I'll start with religion. I already went over the history of it, but I need to go back to Islam for a moment. With no mention of demonic possession in the Quran, and a wide definition of jinn that means they're regarded as unseen forces, it's difficult to attribute demonic possession to Islam in general, which leaves us with Christianity. The theories for this split into two ideas. The first idea here is that demons and demonic possession is real. This would then mean that exorcists learn how to use the Holy Spirit to discern and expel these evil beings. It would also mean that the Pentecostal priests that perform these masterful shows of exorcisms that involve speaking in tongues and bodily contortions right beside faith healings would also have the power through worship alone. So why would they be viewed as different? And why does one version involve a great amount of learning and observation while the other just has the ability to do the same thing without any formal training. It opens the theory up to further questions, like whether worshipping Christians have the ability to perform exorcisms or not. The second idea here is grounded in history. The idea of exorcism in the modern world is inexplicably linked to Christianity. Anything prior to that helps us to see where it came from, but the idea of exorcism comes from the time of the heretics. The splitting of Christianity into multiple sects began an idea that evil had corrupted even the people of Christendom. 
The best way to rid themselves of this was for the Catholics to begin treating these sects like evil creatures. The Inquisition began using an exorcism-style system to remove these threats, which lends to this idea. Pentecostal Christians and their need to convert people doubles down on this. The idea that anyone outside of their ideals is evil perpetuates the idea that evil is in control of people, suggesting that demonic possession is an extension of this. Outside of religion, there are other theories. Possession appears in other cultures, but is voluntary and often induces a trance-like state. Psychology refers to it as a ritualised trance state or dissociation, both of which can overlap. They're similar to hypnosis, with suggestibility low and willingness to obey high. There are other theories related to psychology for possession. Some believe that it's a form of dissociative identity disorder, or DID. There is a related variance known as tulpomancy, which involves manifesting sentient beings from inside oneself. This does go further, but that's for another time. One theory suggests that outbreaks of behaviour surrounding and attributed to demonic influence such as possession is explained by the phenomenon of mass hysteria. It's similar to a trance-like state, where suggestibility is high in these situations. However, the suggestibility is different. In a ritualised trance, the suggestibility is relatively confined. During mass hysteria, the confinement disappears, allowing it to raise within the general public during times of panic. It often begins with public fear of an unseen enemy like a contaminant that causes unusual symptoms. It becomes contagious without any kind of exposure or explanation. Often framed as a type of conversion disorder, it's an unconscious process. This means that people affected aren't faking or even doing anything on purpose. The idea of mass hysteria often only affects specific areas, such as Salem during the witch trials. Now, considering the worldwide belief in possession, it's possible that it does affect people on a wider scale. But there's the possibility of psychotic disorders as well. A delusion of being possessed isn't unusual for people who suffer from such disorders. One study looked into religious coping in schizophrenia by interviewing four participants. They found that each participant had a distorted perception of their actions being controlled by evil entities in their respective religions. These beliefs were strengthened by religious figures in their life, be they family, clergy or even the media. This caused them to delay assessment and treatment, instead choosing to turn to religion for coping strategies. Schizophrenia provides evidence for the sufferer to believe the delusions often in the form of auditory hallucinations, which is hearing voices. These voices are attributed to the devil or other demons and can be compounded by loss of agency, causing sufferers to believe that their thoughts and actions are foreign to them, as if they aren't in control of themselves. These symptoms aren't only in schizophrenia though, and do occur in other medical and psychiatric conditions. One psychiatrist met patients who had developed symptoms of possession in such ways. They didn't have histories of psychosis, weren't particularly religious, nor had they given much thought to possession. 
One became convinced of their possession during Manic Episode, believing they heard the voice of the devil, and began to have the urge to strike out at people or become racist without wanting to do so. Another developed loss of agency after encephalitis due to COVID, causing them to believe that this loss was caused by possession. They were at a loss, pleading for a way to rid themselves of the demon. A more recent case of possession in medical literature described the medical evidence behind it. There was a structural abnormality in the part of the brain called the basal ganglia, located right in the centre of the brain. To add to that, there were real-time associations with the patient's possession experience in a way that was visible. During the experiences, the temporal lobe, located behind the ears, experienced a lack of blood flow. Is demonic possession a real thing, caused by unseen monsters? Or is it something else, like a neurological disorder or suggestion? I'll leave the decision up to you. But in the coming days, you'll learn more about possessions through real cases, so you can understand more. information from this episode came from an article on the Gospel Coalition about demonic possession, an Islam Q&A article about jinn possession, an Al-Akham article called Islam and Reality of Exorcism and Jinn, an article from Pew Research Centre about jinn and supernatural phenomena, a National Geographic article on the history of exorcism, a history article about the history of exorcism and the Catholic rites of exorcism. The theories from this episode came from the previous articles, a Psychology Today article called A Differential Diagnosis of Demonic Possession, and a research article called Delusions of Possession and Religious Coping in Schizophrenia, a qualitative study of four cases. References and links are posted on social media if you want to take a look. The link tree is available in the episode description, so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your preferred platform. Patreon is still unchanged with a £3 tier if you want to support me, but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too. The next episode releases tomorrow and Creature Features will return next week. So hold on until then.